Well, friends, I wonder this morning how you feel about repeating yourself. Let me say it again. How do you feel about repeating yourself? I don't know if any of you have had this experience, maybe uh, as a parent or, or, or as a boss or, or as an employee that you're speaking to someone and, and they don't hear you exactly right or, or they don't listen to you and, and don't do what you have asked them to do and you have find yourself repeating yourself, saying the same thing over and over again. Well, friends, this, this can be frustrating, can't it? But more than frustrating is the awkwardness that comes when you have to ask someone else to repeat themselves to you. I wonder if this has ever happened to you. You've been talking to someone and they say something and you didn't quite make it out. Just, just what did they say? And so you say, what did you say? Can you repeat yourself? And they say it again. Only you didn't hear them the second time either. Has this ever happened to you? And you find yourself just saying, uh, okay. And nodding in agreement because how dare you ask a second time for them to repeat themselves? Well, whether we're asking for the re repetition or we're the ones giving it, repeating ourselves is something that is a part of life. Friends, there are times in our lives that we need to hear the same thing over again, though, don't we? In fact, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of us in reading God's Word, find ourselves saying, well, haven't I heard that before? It, didn't this say that somewhere else? And if we're good Bible readers, by all means we should see this, feel this, and know this. In fact, in many ways, the Bible is just the same message being repeated over and over and over again. In fact, this is how we've come, and you guys have heard me say this before, how we've come to explain what the Bible teaches to our own children. This is it. The same message of the gospel over and over again. God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixes it. This is the message of God's Word. God made it. We broke it. And Jesus fixes it. Well, friends, we, over the last few weeks and on into the rest of this summer, are looking at just one of these messages of repetition. We've taken up studying these 12 peculiar men that have a certain word from the Lord that they give that comes at the end of our Old Testament. This is what are commonly known as the minor prophets. They're called minor not because they are less important, as if any portion of God's word is unimportant. They're called minor because their prophecies tend to be on the shorter side, as opposed to the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They're, they're longer books and longer prophecies. But we have these 12 men here who are giving shorter words from the Lord, or should I say shorter word from the Lord. See, it's one peculiar message that they give over and over again. They act, in a sense, as lawyers, Old Testament lawyers, who give the word of the Lord to the people of God it is a word that is announcing a coming judgment from God. A coming judgment. If they don't, they call them to repent. If the people of God do not turn from their sin, they will face destruction and great sorrow. At the same time, they bring a message of future hope for those who do repent. And so in this sense, they act as lawyers presenting the case the case of Yahweh before His people, the case of their sin. 
And friends, as they repeat the same message over and over and over again, it's good for us to hear it too. It's a message that we need to hear. And so today we come to the third of these prophets, the prophet Amos. Now Amos is, for me, one of my favorite of these prophets because he is a prophet's prophet. His message is, is fairly straightforward. It's fairly easy to understand. Yes, there are some things that are a bit confusing, and I'll try to iron those out for us this morning. But by and large, the message of Amos is a pretty straightforward message, declaring what Yahweh has told him to declare. And it is a repeated message. In Amos' prophecy alone, which, which is nine chapters, yes, but, but compared to other prophecies like Isaiah or Ezekiel, it's not a very long prophecy, but in Amos' prophecy alone, over 35 times he says, the Lord said, thus says the Lord, thus declares the Lord. If anything, Amos' prophecy is a repetition of Yahweh's word over and over again. If you have a Bible, let's go ahead and turn to the book of Amos. To the book of Amos. And friend, if you didn't bring a Bible with you or don't have a Bible of your own, you can always use the one there in the pew in front of you. One of those black Bibles. Amos is on page 417 in that Bible. If you're new to the Bible, you can turn there and look for his name. And as always, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible of your own, we are happy to bless you with the gift of God's Word today. There are some for your taking there on the back table in the foyer. They're blue Bibles. You can grab one on your way out. Or if you have a friend that you know that needs a Bible, you're more than welcome to take one of those and gift it to them. Well, as you turn to Amos, let me give you our three points. Uh, it's been our normal practice in the reading of God's Word at the beginning of the sermon. We stand up once more for the reading of God's Word. Uh, but because we're going to be looking at so much of Amos this morning, instead of doing that here at the beginning, we're going to be reading it throughout. I won't make you stand throughout the sermon, but uh, we're going to be reading the book throughout. But let me go ahead and give you the three points, the three main sections of the book of Amos. It's pretty straightforward and clear. In the first two chapters, we're going to find the God of justice. He really lays out who God is in those first two chapters. And then in chapters 3 through 6, the middle portion of the book, we find the people of injustice. He lays out the charges against them at the people of injustice. And finally, there in the last three chapters in 7 through 9, we find how we go from destruction to hope. From destruction to hope. And so let's jump into it there then in looking at the first couple of chapters and consider this God of justice. God of justice. Let me read for us the first verse there as we are introduced to Amos himself. It says there, the words of Amos who was among the shepherds at Tico, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, apart from Amos' book and Amos' prophecy, this is really all the biographical information we have about Amos. There's not very much that we're told about him other than this information here. But it is some very key information to understanding the message of the book itself. It's really interesting, as we've studied the Minor Prophets, one of the things that you might pick up on is how God personalizes each of the prophecies that He gives these prophets to who they are. That they can't help but have their personalities come out in the prophecies, much like if you read the writings of Paul or Peter or John, how they're different. Well, the prophecies are different as well. And so here we have Amos from Tycho, a city that's about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. 
Amos is a native there of Judah itself, the nation of Judah there in Tico. His hometown is a small town. But Amos's ministry, as we're going to come to see, is not to his native nation of Judah, but to Israel in the north, the, the, the northern kingdom that had broke from Judah. You may remember this. We've talked about it as we've gone through because it's important to understand. But back there in 1 Kings 12, we see the two kingdoms split. As Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, comes to the throne, this man Jeroboam decides to rebel against the king. And so he takes Israel, the, the, these ten tribes to the north, and Rehoboam takes Judah, along with the tribe of Benjamin and Levi, to the south. If you want to go and read about the history of that this week, it's there again in 1 Kings 12. But we have Amos here, who's from Judah, but he's speaking mostly to Israel. He speaks as an outsider to the people of God in the north. But when is it that he speaks? Well, he prophesies during the two years after or during this earthquake that's mentioned. There's an earthquake mentioned here to give us a time stamp. And we're not certain exactly when this earthquake, earthquake took place. Earthquakes were common, as they still are today. But this means it's likely during the time between 760 and 755 B.C. Remember, when we're talking about B.C., it goes backwards. So the smaller numbers are closer, really, to the coming of Christ. And so he prophesied somewhere in between that period, during the end of the reign of Jeroboam, Jeroboam II, not the first. And during this reign of Jeroboam, it is a time of lavish fruitfulness for Israel. They've experienced a, a, a fair amount of peace because Assyria is not really a, a military threat during this time. And so the people of God are living high on the hog. Things are going great. Everything seems to be flourishing among the people of Israel. But we have this earthquake. Why is it mentioned here? Well, it's not mentioned just to be a timestamp to help us know when Amos was prophesying, prophesying, but it helps us understand his message as well. This earthquake here at the very beginning serves as a great metaphor for the impending judgment of Amos' message. It is an earthquaking judgment, an earth-shaking word from God. And why is it so earth-shaking? Well, let's continue reading. We're told in the very next verse. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion. And utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. What's so interesting about Amos is that he's not a prophet by trade. In fact, later in chapter 7, verse 14, he says, I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. No, we're told who Amos is. It wasn't his vocation to be a prophet. We're told back up there in verse 1 that he is a shepherd. That he is a shepherd. And what is it that shepherds fear the most? Lions. They fear lions who come in and take the sheep. And so isn't it interesting now that we see the Lord in Amos' prophecy, the prophecy of this shepherd is cast as a lion. The one who has, back in Psalm 23, been described as our shepherd suddenly becomes the threat to his own people. We see there that the Lord has now become the lion to fear and the predator over Israel. 
He roars from Zion. His voice comes from Jerusalem. Why is this so important? Because God had established Jerusalem as the center place for His worship. It was the place where God dwelt among His people in the tabernacle and in the temple. It was there that God had set up where He was to be worshipped. And it is so from there that His voice is uttered. But the people of Israel didn't believe this. They didn't trust this. They didn't follow this way. In fact, their king Jeroboam had set up something very different for them. See, it's in the cities of Dan and the cities of Bethel that King Jeroboam for Israel had set up golden calves. Much like those golden calves that had been cast there at the bottom of Mount Sinai in Exodus. They had been given over then to false worship. To drawing in pagan worship and worshiping things made with hands. Because Jeroboam realized something that we need to come and realize as well. That if two nations have one God and one place of worship, those two nations will become one. And Jeroboam didn't like that. He didn't want it. He wanted to keep his nation separate from God so that he would remain in control. So God is going to roar to the point that the shepherds, the sheep, and the land itself withers, it says there in verse 2. And God is going to use Amos, the shepherd, to do it. Why? It's because God loves using weak and uneducated people to do great and glorious things. And so Amos acts as a prophetic genius. You know, what's so amazing about this book is that Amos, though he's a shepherd, is not some hick from the backwoods. No, this is a literary masterpiece. His prophecy is beautiful and it is organized. We see over and over and over again that he uses the number of seven, which rep represents the number of, of completion, of wholeness, giving off the idea that the message of the Lord, the judgment of God held out here in Amos' prophecies is His full judgment. He's holding nothing back. He's telling them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And He's going to make this come to pass. And He says over and over three times in the book, you can write these down, in chapter 4, verse 14, chapter 5, 8 and 9, and chapter 9, 5 and 6, that this message is coming from the one who is the creator, the sustainer, and the judge over all the earth. Amos, the Lord through Amos, does not want the people of Israel to have any question about who it is giving this judgment. It is Yahweh Himself. And we see this judgment by the creator begin there in those first two chapters. Let's continue reading. I'm going to jump around a bit here because I want you to see what these first judgments, these first thus saith the Lord's are all about. So first in verse 3 he says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Then in verse 6, here's the next one, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. You flip over. To verse 9, the next one, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Then in verse 11, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not revoke punishment. Then in verse 13, thus says the Lord, 
for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not revoke punishment. And finally there in verse, or chapter 2, verse 1, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. What do we have here? Well, before we ever get to the people of God, God begins His words of judgment over the nations themselves. These vignettes, each one of them have insight into the state of the world at this time when Amos is speaking. And it's not a pretty place to be. These are not the good old days. No, this is a scary time. We see over and over again as you go through and read why God is judging these different nations and these different cities, it is because they have committed over and over again crimes against humanity. They've been selfish. They've been ruthless. They have attacked and overcome their fellow man. God uses this little turn of phrase over and over. You may have picked up on it. You notice the repetition here. Three times this, and for four I will not revoke punishment. What's going on there? Can God not make up his mind? Is he like remembering three things? He's like, oh yeah, and there's a fourth one. No, this is a a poetic way of God expressing the fullness of the whole thing. That nothing is going to be left out. That his judgment will be full and complete because he sees fully and completely the sin and the rot of these people. And so you see things like border skirmishes. You see enslavement represented here. You see betrayal among peoples. You see greed and brutality. Perhaps the worst is there in verse 13 of chapter 1. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not revoke punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. Do you sense the depravity? The depravity of these people. That they would take children out of the wombs so that they could increase their border. Does it sound familiar to you at all? If ever you thought America was the new Jerusalem... Take a look here at God's judgment over the nations and get a sense for where we live in our own time. Is this not the mantra of the murder industry of children in the womb? That they would rip children out of the wombs of their mothers so that they may enlarge their own borders? All of these judgments are reminders that God's standards are not merely for His own chosen people, whether that be His chosen people in the Old Testament or the New Testament. No, God's standards are His standards universally. His morality, His ethics, His judgment, His very law is the law for all of creation. And so all of creation will be held accountable for it. God holds all people and all nations and all cultures accountable to His moral standards whether they have them in written form or simply in their hearts and consciences as Romans 1, 18-32 lays out. This is because all humanity bears the very image of God. Where we were created to display who He is in all of His goodness and all of His rightness and all of His holiness. 
But the friend, this is exactly what sin does, isn't it? And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of God. This Jesus that we've prayed to and sung about you think is, is a silly myth. My friend, hear this. That that is exactly what sin does to us. It flips us upside down and causes us to hate God and to hate the things of God. Primarily, it causes us to hate one another. But friends, Jesus himself picks up on this same judgment, this refining motif in Luke 12, 49, as the very reason that he came. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. This is not the playful Jesus that so many of our Christian radio songs and bookstores try to promote. No, this is a Christ who judges. This is a God who will not put up with injustice and hate. We find that no nation is outside of the judgment of God, not even our own. So can there be hope? Can there be hope for us where we're at today? Could there be hope for the people of God as they have these pagan cultures all around them? And what's more, should we not see that we are not even outside of that judgment? This is exactly where he goes next. Look back with me at chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord. Uh-oh, here we go again. He's having to repeat himself. But who is he speaking to now? For three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke punishment. Why? Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statues, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Then in verse 6, here we go again. He's going to repeat himself again. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Then jump down to verse 13. God says what he's going to do. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. What's emphasized here? Well, friends, we see here that the judgment that Amos brings upon now the very people of God, his chosen people represented in both of the kingdoms, in the south Judah and in the north Israel, the judgment he brings upon them is unfaithfulness to the very covenant that he has made with them. It's not primarily crimes against humanity that he brings up, but it is how they have set themselves against him set themselves against worshiping Him and obeying Him and walking in His ways. Israel, you've got to remember God's people, Jacob and his sons, they've been chosen by God and received covenant promises, covenants that were in place and put in place all the way back in the garden when God promises to Adam 
that he is going to send a, sur a, a, a seed to crush the head of the serpent. Covenant that he makes with, with Noah there upon the mountain after the flood waters subsume. Co covenants that he makes with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob that he renews with Moses in giving the law. The promises that he gives to David of a king to sit on his throne forevermore. These covenants that God has made. These individual covenants are all part of a bigger covenant that God is making to bring redemption to bring salvation to those who walk with Him, who are submitted to Him, to walk in His ways. And here is Israel ignoring the covenant, walking in unfaithfulness, denying that they are any different from those that they are surrounded by. You see, God chose Israel not, not because He hated everybody else. That's not why God chooses Israel. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We find even as we read the law that God chose Israel so that they, through His work and through His presence among them, that they may display the glory of God to the nations. They were chosen so that they could show to all of those who hated God and hated one another that God is who He says He is, that Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God. He is the redeeming God that we can turn and follow. You see that God's way has always been a global mission. So they were called to serve Him by loving Him and obeying Him so that He might set them apart as He is holy. And friends, we know in Exodus 19 that the people entered into this relationship willingly, taking the cause of this covenant. Whatever you have said, we will do. But that's not what we find, is it? So as we continue to move through Amos, God is going to point out exactly what they have done. But before we get there, friends, we must remember that our call is the same. That yes, we are different in some very significant ways than the people of Israel here. But one of the things that is the same under the new covenant is that God has called us to go and make disciples of all nations. That we have been chosen not as a particular people group, but from people all over the world. Yes, I know that we're all sitting here this morning and we are Americans living in the 21st century. But we could sit here all day going back through our lineages and where we come from and who's who. Friends, when Jesus told His apostles to go to Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, this is the end of the earth. The gospel has come here, and now that we have been redeemed, we are called to go and do likewise as His chosen people. Not through generation as the people of old, but through regeneration. We have been born again and brought into the family of God. Why? So that we can walk in covenant faithfulness and display to the nations who our God is. And so what are the temptations? Well, the temptations for them were the same ones for us. So let's continue on and look at the people of injustice. And like a good lawyer, Amos is not just going to accuse, but he's going to give evidence. As seen before, the charges of Israel surround different aspects. On the one hand, we have their faith. and On the other hand, we have their practice. We have to hold those two in tension. We have to hold those two together. Because what we're going to come to see as we look at the book of Amos is that your belief, your faith, your relationship with God Himself will always affect your relationship with others. 
There's a reason this is the two greatest commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is it. In these two, the whole law is included. And so this is what he draws out first. We see this in chapter 3, verse 2. And this is, if you're looking for a summary verse for the whole prophecy of Amos, this is it right here. 3, 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Because you are mine, I'm not going to let you off the hook. If, if there was ever something for us parents to take up, when our children say, why? Why am I always in trouble? Why are you disciplining me again? Because you have I known. And I will not let your iniquities go unpunished. Amen. So, what are they? Well, the first is their compromised and corrupt worship. The first charge against the people is that they have given themselves to false worship, particularly the nation of Israel. Remember, that's where Amos' main focus is on the rest of the book, is Israel. Remember what I said, that, that they had, Jeroboam II had set up these golden calves at the end, the two furthest cities apart in Israel, on both ends, golden calves in the city of Dan and the city of Bethel, and that they would go to worship there. And so he calls them out for this. If you look in chapter 3, verse 13, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob. Jacob, meaning Israel. Okay, so that's Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. So you're following there. Declares the Lord, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. And the houses of ivory shall perish. The great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. What is God saying here? He's saying, I'm going to execute judgment on the evidence of your false worship. That you have these false calves that you pray to. And they're in these beautiful ivory houses. And you know what? I'm going to take them down to dust. You think about what we just looked at this past Wednesday night in 1 Samuel. About what the ark of the Lord does in the house of Dagon. First. Dagon falls down face first before the ark of the Lord. The second day comes in, Dagon's fallen down again, but now his hands and his head have been cut off. And God says, I'm going to do the exact same thing to those golden calves in Dan and Bethel. Their horns, I'm going to lop them off. Horns being the sign of power. It's going to lop them off. We find that Amos mentions the city of Bethel in particular six times in the book. Because this city represents the epicenter of Israel's idolatry. And it leads to this challenge, if you flip over to chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. It's this challenge by God, and you almost can feel the, the, the sarcasm in God's speech. Now, sarcasm can be sinful. Let me say this, okay? Sarcasm can be sinful. Some of us struggle with sinful sarcasm. But it is a useful tool from time to time to convey the point. And so let's look at godly sarcasm here in Amos' own prophecy in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Do you feel this? It's almost as if God himself steps into the courtroom and says, give me your best shot. I am the judge and the jury. Let's see what evidence you have. 
Let's see if you can find a better God to worship and a better way to worship me. What do you want to try? Bring it on. We see that this false worship had actually led them to ascribing strength finally to themselves in the end. And friends, this is exactly what false worship does. This is exactly what false worship does. I realize by and large that there are no golden calves here in our own country and in our own time. I don't think there's any golden calves here in Roanoke. I may be wrong. There may be. But that does not mean that false worship does not abound among us. That does not mean that false worship does not abound in cultures and societies like our own around the world. It just looks a little different. But what it always leads to is the exact same thing, and that is ascribing strength to yourself. That is pride, that, that I am able to do everything that I need to do. And so we see that Israel themselves became very proud. So God would humble them by destroying all their strongholds. And this is their chief sin here in thinking about worship. It's that they had put their trust elsewhere. What do we mean when we say to worship? It's, it's that. To worship is to put your trust and your heart behind what you care about the most. It is to lean on the thing that is most trustworthy to you. For some of us, it is ourselves. For some of us, it is our bank accounts. For some of us, it is our relationships or our jobs. And friends, it's sad to say for some folks, it's even the church itself. That we can make an idol out of the gathering of God's people. That they are meant to bear all of my burdens and never casting them upon the Lord. But true biblical worship is looking to God as the one who can meet all of our needs alone. And yes, He does that through certain means. By providing for us, as in food and finances and jobs and, and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's He who is the one in which we trust. So this misdirected worship then leads to a miscarriage of justice. The misdirected worship of Israel leads now to a miscarriage of justice. And we see this as Amos contrasts those with much and how they treat those with little. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this, you cows of Bashan. Now that's not a compliment, okay? We'll get to that in just a minute. Who are on the mountain of Samaria. That's another word for Israel. It's another way of describing Israel. Who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. Who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks even the last of you with fish hooks. Yeah, that's scary. That's crazy. What's going on here? We remember, we must remember that the lavish lifestyle of the reign of Jeroboam II had afforded them a lot of, a lot of pleasantries. And what's more, these lifestyles had brought them to put their feet upon the necks of the needy. This is exactly what's described here. And so Amos calls out the leading ladies of Israel. He calls them, you cows of Bashan. And he's not making a statement about how they look, okay? He's making a statement about how they live. And that they are living with lazy and apathetic attitudes. They're seeking to only feed themselves in self-indulgence. And so they spend all of their time and their money and their resources on building themselves up. And women in particular, this is a warning. This is a warning to us even this morning to those women who are prone to find their purpose in purchases. 
that we would find our purpose and our identity in what we can accumulate and what we can find and how we can be. But he doesn't stop there as if the women were the only problem. No, finally he puts responsibility where it's due there in chapter 6. If you'll flip over there in verses 1 through 7. But woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over Calneh and see, and from there go up to Hamath the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls, not cups, bowls, and anoint themselves with the finest oils and are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Friends, where does he finally put the onus of responsibility upon Israel? He puts it on the men, the notable men. He says, go and look at the nations. Has anybody got it better than you? And yet, you use it for yourselves. You take lambs for yourselves. You take calves for yourselves. You use the finest oils for yourselves. You see that their false sense of security had made them cold-hearted, make them apathetic and prideful so that they look down upon others. And friends, yes, this was pervasive among the people but it was perpetuated by these leaders of the day, the leaders of the homes and the leaders of their worship. And so we should, as, as men in the church, be struck by the deep responsibility that God lays upon these men for right worship and right living, for the ongoing abuse of power because of their poor lack of commitment to God. And so this is a word to us, especially as fathers. We should ask ourselves, how are we casting a vision for the simple life in our home? How are we casting a vision for a Godward life in our home? Are we getting around the table and getting around in the couch? Are we on our knees by the bed, praying with our children, reading the word and singing? Not idle songs like they were doing here, but songs that are full of faith and trust in the Lord. We can't start this too early. There's also a warning here for pastors as well, for the spiritual leaders of a church. We must ask ourselves how we are doing it, cultivating a love and a compassion for those who are hurting among us. God, may it never be that we stand up here on this platform like we're better than anyone else. But may we be shepherds who sacrifice our lives for the sheep and leading them to greener and greener pastures. See here that Israel's homemade gods, these bulls, Dedan and Bethel, 
would not protect them from the evils of their own hearts, but instead would breed cruelty and callousness. Do you see that? We, we live in a world that says this, right? It says, we don't need God, but man, we do need to love people. We need to include people. We need to make sure everybody's cared for. But we don't need God. And yet, where is it that we constantly see the poor and the hurting and the oppressed being further into poverty and oppression? So often by those who say they have no need of God. And so we see back in chapter 5 what Amos says. Verse 10, They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, and you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gates. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil Friends, what do we have here? Well, in many ways we have a problem that is repeated over and over in the Bible. It is the problem of wrong worship that leads to a wrong life. It is the problem of wrong devotion that leads to moral destruction. Is this not what James himself says? Many of you have memorized James 1.27. What does it say? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. What? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And friends, I'll be honest with you. Our culture loves that part of the verse. Our culture loves it when Christians remember orphans and widows in their affliction. They love it. That's exactly what we need. But they hate the second part of the verse. And oh, how we have failed to memorize it ourselves. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Right worship and right behavior go together hand in hand. Doctrine and life are tied together. So if we do not worship God and keep ourselves unstained from the world, there's no way that we can ever love orphans and widows as they need and as they deserve. True living always flows out of true worship. Anyone who worships Dan and Bethel will inevitably step upon the necks of others. So by looking at worship as the fountain of good works, it helps us to answer our modern problem. And this is a problem that's so pervasive in so many churches. This modern social gospel and social justice movement says that the highest thing that we can do is care for people. It is the most important thing that we can do because world poverty is a huge problem. There are those who are marginalized and oppressed in our culture. So the best thing that we can do, what Jesus wants us to care about the most, is caring for other people. Is that what the Bible says? When they say, how can we worry about holiness inside when hunger prevails outside, what should we say? Amos says that unless your hearts are right with God... Your feet will always be upon the neck of the poor. Unless your hearts are right with the Lord, you can never love those around you appropriately. This is the Judas problem, is it not? 
Oh, why are you breaking that expensive jar of ointment and putting it on Jesus? Man, we should have given that and so, went and sold it and given that money to the poor via Judas's pocket as the treasurer first. So this is the great need of our day. It's not to reform our society. Please hear me say that. The great need of our day is not to reform our society, but it is to reform our church. It is to set our churches right. Not because what's going on out there is not important. It is. Chapter 1 tells us so. But because it's so important that unless we change the state of the church, we'll never be any good. We'll never be any good. Amos understood the call to change the world through proper worship. We must care about right worship. That's why we devote so long. That's why this sermon is so long. It's because we care about right worship. We care about understanding the Word of God. That's why the Word of God is read in our services. That's why we pray the Word of God. That's why we sing songs that are taken from the Word of God. Our worship must be formed around the Bible. This is not just true in our gatherings. This must be true in our homes and in our hearts. Parents, this is the greatest thing you can instill in your children. It is a love of God. It is a love of God. The greatest thing that will change this world and change, if you care about our own society and culture, the only thing that's going to ever change it is people who love God. Therefore, the greatest thing that you can do for your children as a parent is help them grow in loving God. Don't miss the warnings of those who don't. There in the end of Amos 5 all the way through 6, 7. I won't take time to read it for us this morning, but there are these woes. These woes, they're like pulling the rain. Whoa, watch out. Here's the warning. Be ready. We see this. And we must ask ourselves this question. Why must we know or what must we know about God to move us then into proper worship and care? What do we need to know about God? And this is what we find in the last point. I'll try to get through it as quickly as possible, but I trust the Spirit will sustain you as we keep going. We see how He moves from destruction to hope there in 7 through 9. And as we move into this section, we're brought face-to-face with a cycle. And I, I think this is really helpful for us to see. So let me take a minute here and just lay this out. It's a cycle that we see throughout history happen over and over and over again. We see it in our Bibles. We see it in, in, in world history. A cycle that continues over and over and over again. And this is the cycle, okay? See if you can pick up on it. Think about the Bible or think about our culture. See if you pick up on it. And it's this. Prayer, calling out to God. Step one. Step two, God rains down His blessing. Step three, people become apathetic and lazy in the blessing of God. Step four, chaos ensues. That is the pattern that we see over and over and over again. Just consider our own nation. That our own nation began with a zeal for the Lord in many ways. That many who came to this nation, to this new world, they loved the Lord and they wanted to live for the Lord. They, They fought for religious liberty and a preaching, a simple preaching of the gospel. And the Lord seems to have blessed our nation in many ways. But we grew tired of God. We grew tired of His ways. 
we became lazy and apathetic. And now, as cultural commentator Aaron Wren has said, we are living in a negative world. A world that doesn't kind of like God. A world that doesn't put up with God. But we've entered into a time that hates God. And friends, we're at the, we're at the front end of that time. If history of the Bible teaches us anything, that time's only going to grow unless the Lord does something. And so this is why we cry out. This is why our churches must be changed by the gospel. This is what Peter himself says in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange because it always happens. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That won't preach on TV, will it? Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outsiders for those... I'm sorry, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Friends, it is because of stupidity and selfishness that we refuse to learn. In mercy, though, God sends trials to correct us. So He did the same for them. There in chapter 7... We have three visions that are given. The vision of locust, the vision of fire, and the vision of this plumb line, which would be dangled down the side of a wall, and it would help to see if the wall was off kilter or not. If it was off kilter at all, the wall would collapse. And Amos says, Israel is off kilter. The plumb line has shown things are not straight around here, and so it's going to fall. And it's in light of these visions that Amos is then challenged. And we're reminded as you read there in 7, 10 through 14, it's this little bit of an insertion of a narrative, a little story. This guy shows up, Amaziah, and he starts lying about Amos. And the reason he's lying about Amos is because he doesn't like it. He doesn't like the message of Amos. And so he's pushing back against it, calling him out. And friends, we must, I bring this up because we must be prepared for the same thing. When we stand on God and His Word and call people to repentance, we will be met with opposition, as Amos was. But it seems like it only fuels Amos' prophecy. And so we have the pinnacle of Amos' violent vision right after that in chapter 8. It's the day of the Lord, which was mentioned for the second time here in this book. Something we began to look at last week, this day of judgment, this day when God would make all things right and His justice would reign. And it's here that the judgment of God comes upon His wayward people. But we must remember, as we learned last week, but this day of judgment is not just a day of destruction. But as we saw last week, that salvation comes through judgment. 
Which brings us to the final promise of hope at the end of the book. So will you turn there with me? Verse 11 of chapter 9. That even as God brings judgment on the day of the Lord, there is restoration held out. It says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make, their, make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord. This final statement of Amos includes rebuilding and reconquest of fruitful abundance and restoration of lasting security. But do you notice that this will not be the work of the people? It is the work of God. He is the one who does this. And these temporal realities, blessings, this temporal restoration has this baseline underneath it. Baseline. Underneath it. It has an eternal tone of something greater He's pointing to something much more glorious than the temporal restoration of Israel that happens after their exile. He's pointing to something much more glorious than any nation could ever experience. He's pointing ahead to the return of the one who would establish them forever. Shortly put, he's he's pointing ahead to the new heavens and the new earth themselves. And this is the work of the Lord. This is why James quotes this very passage in Acts 15 when Paul and Barnabas come back and share about what God has been doing among the Gentiles. James says, this is is starting to happen. God is starting to establish His glory and His kingdom on all the earth, and all the nations are going to be brought in. Here it comes. Get ready. And so, friends, we see that as we turn to Christ individually, our own personal salvation is not the end of the story. But we long for the day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. We desire and pray for the day of Christ appearing when He will separate the sheep and the goats, when the nations will be judged finally and fully. And God's own will be welcomed in with eternal security under an eternal king, the true booth of David, the Word made flesh who came and dwelt among us, who gave Himself up for us, who was destroyed so that we may have hope. It's this God that we come to. It's this God that we turn to. This is the very climax of the book. It's stuck right there in the middle like it was in Joel last week. It's chapter 5 of Amos. I want to encourage you to go back and read that passage this week. As Amos calls people to look to the Lord and live. Friends, we find that the lion that roared in Zion is still roaring from Zion now. Only now the covenant has changed. In Christ, the Lion of Judah, a new covenant has been made. 
through regeneration and not through natural generation. As Christians, what are we to do? Do we hate other nations? Do we succumb to the nations around us? Or do we live as strangers and aliens calling them to a new and everlasting allegiance? In our homes, in our church, in our jobs, I wonder if you hear the roaring lion. The roaring lion who is also the shepherd of his sheep. Reminded that portion in Narnia where they learn that Aslan, the king of Narnia, is actually a lion. A lion? I don't know if I want to meet a lion. Is he safe? What does Mr. Beaver tell the children? Safe? Tame? Lions aren't safe. No. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's good. And he is the king, I tell you. Friends, this is the one we worship. This is the one we live for. So may we worship Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength as we do love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray with me. Father, we need You. We need You to work in us and through us. We need You to change our hearts and our minds toward You and toward one another. And so God, we pray and we ask, even in this time as we come to the table, that you would do a great work in us. That as we look forward to that day when Christ returns, that we would be reminded of who we are called to be in these days. May we be a city on a hill. May we be the salt and the light that you've called us to be. So that we may join with all the redeemed in one day crying, holy, 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 glory to the Lamb. It is in Jesus' name we pray.